Tonight we're in Psalm 44. If you have a Bible, let's open there. To like two of the most beautiful psalms. I I must confess, I, I didn't realize how wonderful these psalms were. I mean, God's word is is wonderful, but sometimes you go through chapters for whatever reason, they kind of seem to just really speak to you, you know. And and here in Psalm 44, uh, we begin reading in verse one. It's to the chief musician, a contemplation of the sons of Korah. And we'll come back to that later. But he says in verse 1, We have heard with our ears, O God, our fathers have told us that the deeds you did in their days, in days of old, you drove out the nations with your hand, but them you planted. You afflicted the peoples and, and cast them out. For they did not gain possession of the land by their own sword, nor did their own arm save them. But it was your right hand, your arm, and the light of your countenance, because you favored them. Here we see the sons of Korah. They contemplate the past. You know, they've kind of heard the stories of how God gave Israel the land. And so I, I hope that you guys have read your Bibles, you've read your Old Testament, you know, because it's awesome. It's awesome what God did, how he raised up the Jewish the Jewish people early in Genesis chapter 11 and 12, you see Abraham already show up. And then, you know, you see them uh, multiplying to a certain extent in Israel, then going down to Egypt where there's a population explosion. And so, you know, you have now about 3 million descendants of Abraham and they're slaves in Egypt. And you guys got to read Exodus chapter 12 and 13 and 14, how God redeemed them out of Egypt He led them in the wilderness. It should have been an 11-day journey, but because of their sin, it took 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. But eventually, when the time was right, the sins of the the nations of Canaan, those seven nations, their sins reached to the heavens. I mean, they were killing their kids. I mean, they were putting their children in fire. I mean, you name it, they were doing it. And so they were ripe and ready for judgment, and the children of Israel had been humbled and so now it was their time, and God went in. And you guys, you, you read the book of Joshua, and he gave them the land. They crossed the Jordan, and they entered into the promised land. It was the, the land that God had promised to Abraham. You know, over 400 years earlier, he said, Abraham, look up at the, at the stars and check out the sand, the grains of sand, and so your, shall your descendants be. And this land I'm going to give to you. And it's just such a beautiful story of how God gave them the land that they're in even today. It's amazing. And so, you know, it's a great story. And it wasn't them. We read right here, it wasn't their sword. You guys remember even the very first city that they conquered. All they did was march around the city. I mean, it was not a good battle plan. They marched around the city six times and the walls fell down. Imagine that. And then they all went forward, and that was God just telling them, yeah, you're going to fight, you're going to do your part, but I want you to know I'm the one who's given you everything. And so here, the sons of Korah, they're contemplating the past. You know, it was God who did it. It was God who drove out the seven nations mightier than them. With his right hand, we read here, personally, God planted them. It wasn't their own sword. It wasn't their own soldiers. It wasn't their own army or artillery. 
It was the arm of the Almighty. You know, God looked and God loved. It was God's face. It was God's favor. We read that there. Notice again in verse 3. It was your right hand, your arm, the light of your countenance. Notice, because you favored them. And, and you go back and you read Ezekiel chapter 16, and that's how God chose Israel. It, it wasn't because they were the best. It was because he gave them favor. He gave them grace. That's what grace means, God's unmerited favor, God's unearned favor. God gave them grace. God chose them because he wanted to use them to reach the world and tell the world about God's love and holiness and how to be saved. And so it's just a a wonderful story of how, you know, the sons of Korah, they're looking back and and they heard the stories about how God had given them the land, it's not our own power or purity, it's God and his amazing, the words of God that had come true, the wonders of God, how he came through, how he brought us out of Egypt and the Red Sea divided and he fed them in the wilderness, you know, and took care of them and, you know, their shoes didn't wear out and they had, you know, manna and sometimes even meat and the water came from the rock and just all the wonderful things that God had done you know, and how he brought us out of this place of slavery. And, and, then, and this is a quick side note. This is our responsibility as parents. We're to tell our children the wonderful works of God, what he's done. You know, I know it's a bit challenging, but my prayer really is that my testimony would be their testimony, so to speak. You know, and I know it's hard because every individual has to make their own choice. God has no grandchildren. Our children need to choose the Lord. But they don't have to go through the same things we went through. We could tell them the wonderful works, what God has done in our life. And that can be, in one sense, their story. You know, yeah, my dad told me, you know, how he was so lost and dead and addicted to drugs and he never had whatever, the family, love. He was always searching for it. Then one day, Jesus came into his life. And, and that could be their story, too. That's kind of what God intended for the children of Israel. The fathers told them the wonderful works that God had done. You know, I, I like Psalm 78. If you would, just turn there. Because we see something similar. Notice what we read. In Psalm 78, beginning in verse 1. It says, give ear, O O my people, to my law. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings of old, which we have heard and known, and our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from their children. We'll telling to the generation to come the praises of the Lord and his strength and his wonderful works that he has done. For he established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers that they should make them known to their children, that the generation to come might know them, the children who would be born, that they may arise and declare them to their children, that they may set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments and may not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation that did not set its heart aright and whose spirit was not faithful to God. You see the responsibility that parents have. 
you know, that we have really to tell even new believers in one sense, they're like the, ch- the children. Tell them your story. Tell them what God has done over here. Tell them especially the, the Bible. Because all these, really, the, the Bible is filled with stories that are sufficient for us to express our faith in God. And so, you know, back in, in Psalm 44, the psalmist, he looks back and he says, you know, we've heard the stories. You know, we have heard those stories. But then he begins to pray and makes it personal. Notice what we read in verse 4. He says, you are my king, O God. Command victories for Jacob. Through you, we will push down our enemies. Through your name, we will trample those who rise up against us. For I will not trust in my bow, nor shall my sword save me. But you have saved us from our enemies and put to shame those who hated us. In God, we boast all day long and praise your name forever. You know, he's looking back and he sees what God has done. But right now, we're going to see as we go through the psalm, he is there in captivity. We're going to see this is written from the children of Israel, more than likely in a place like Babylon. And, but now he begins to pray. And he's, he's going to try to get out of it. He's going to try to move forward in his life. He, he prays right here, Lord, in, in verse 4, you are my king. Lord, you're in control. Lord, please hear my plea. God, you see what I'm going through. I need you to grant me victory. So what he prays right there, you are my king, command victories for Jacob. He's praying for the nation. And it's interesting, you know, in in verse 5, it says, through you we will push down our enemies. Literally in the Hebrew language, it's different. It says, we will toss them in the air with our horns. And, 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 and you can just visualize that ox or a bull uh, tossing the dog into the air, which attacks him. That's kind of what he's saying. The horn in the Bible, always symbolic of power. And the enemy's coming against us, you guys. The enemy's doing his thing. The enemy has his strategy. Satan does. You know, and, and God right here, he's, we see this guy, he's praying. Lord, give us the victory in this situation. You know, he tells the Lord there in verse 7, I'm not trusting in, how, in my bow or my sword. Honestly, Lord, I'm not trusting in me and myself. Not, not, not in any way, Lord, I'm trusting in you. You know, in the situation that you're in, whatever you're going to you know, face in the future, maybe you're right in the middle of it, maybe you need to tuck this away for a rainy day. But the question is, or will you, are you truly, totally trusting in the Lord? You know, because that's where this guy's at, man. He's in a hard spot. He's looking back. He knows the stories. He knows God is able, that nothing is too hard for God. You're my king, Lord. Command victories for us. Lord, you know, he says, uh, I trust you. And, and all that's just trying to, you know, in one sense, convince God to, to work on his behalf. You know, and trust is so important. We find it over and over again in the Psalms. Uh, Psalm 4 and verse 5, it says, Offer the sacrifices of righteousness and put your trust in the Lord. Psalm 31, 6, I have hated those who regard useless idols. I trust in the Lord. 
Psalm 37, verse 3, trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and feed on his faithfulness. In Psalm 40, in verse 3, he has put a new song in my mouth. Praise to our God. Many will see it in fear. And as a result, they will trust in the Lord. Psalm 73, 28, it's good for me to draw near to God. I have put all my trust in the Lord that I may declare all your works. Psalm 115 and verse 9, O Israel, trust in the Lord. And verse 10, O house of Aaron, trust in the Lord. And Psalm 115, basically he's speaking to all those who profess to be believers. You who fear the Lord, trust in the Lord. Psalm 118, 8 and 9, it's better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in man. And have you guys learned that yet? It is better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence even in princes. Psalm 125, verse 1, I love this. It says, those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion, which cannot be moved, but abides forever. Reminds me of Paul the Apostle in Acts 20, 24. But none of these things move me, nor do I count my life dear to myself, that I may finish my race with joy in the ministry to testify of the grace of God. Nothing moves us. Why? Because our trust is totally in the Lord and just in Him. You know, I remember that book I was telling you about last week. You know, it's a book that is, first of all, it establishes from a biblical perspective the sovereignty of God, that God is sovereign and in control. He doesn't author everything, but He allows everything. He's sovereign and in control. And then number two, he loves you with a love that's perfect that will never ever fade away or fluctuate in any way. He's sovereign and he loves you. So what does that mean? The, the name of the book is, is called Trusting God. So then we can trust him. So how can you tell when you're trusting God? Well, when you're trusting God, you're not, you know, consumed in worry, right? There's no panic in trust. There's no manipulation. There you are trying to pull the strings behind the scene. You're, you know, when you trust the Lord, you're able to wait. You don't have to rush into things because you're waiting for his marching orders, right? You know, you, you trust the Lord because you know he's, trustworthy and you don't know necessarily know how but you know somehow god will work this out for good to those who love him and are the called according to his purpose because sometimes i see people going through things and they're not trusting the lord and god's gonna have to deal with them in a different way prayerfully when we go through our trials we keep our eyes on the lord we're trusting in him that's what we need to do you know, we find ourselves in the toughest situations and we don't know how it's all going to all end up. But as we stay focused on the Lord, you know, we land on our feet. You know, kind of like cats. I was reading about cats. And I know a lot of you don't like cats, but you should because they're God's creatures, right? But they're, they're interesting the way that... And I was reading an article and I'm not going to take it out right now, but... Just the, it's interesting with cats. Did you know they land on their feet? They have this keen sense within them. They even have a, the way that God made their, their backs, their spines, that the higher they fall, and I'm not saying you know, it can go crazy high, but even if it's higher, they, they land better. 
you know, and that's kind of how it is sometimes with Christians, you know. Um, sometimes we think, well, I can't take that. Oh, but you don't know the way God has designed you. You'll land on your feet, but you've got to keep your eyes on the Lord. You know, here we see this guy here, he's, he's, he's in a really tough spot. He's trying to stand in the gap for his nation that he loves so much. And he's saying, God, they say that you did these things, and I believe them, and, and so I'm praying, God, be my king, command victories. I want you to know that I trust in you, Lord. I trust in you. I want to see you move, right? And that's what we see going on here, you know, and we're growing and we're discovering that the more you trust God, the more you discover really how trustworthy he is. And, uh, you know, all I know Notice in verse 6, for, for I will not trust in my bow, nor shall my sword save me. Verse 7 is interesting, but you have saved us from our enemies. It is probably not a good translation. It, the, the translation, because then that would contradict what's going on later. Really what he says is, but you give us victory over our enemies. Again, going back to his prayer, Lord, I'm, I'm confident in you what you're going to do. He's basically claiming those promises based upon the favor bestowed upon the forefathers. And, 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 and this is something interesting, and I don't know if you can be here or not, but when you truly, totally trust in the Lord, you'll do what he did there in, in verse 8. It says, In God we boast all day long and praise your name forever. You know, I, I'm not worried. I'm not freaking or fretting. I mean, my God will carry me through this. I know he will. And you boast in God. And you praise him through those difficulties. See, this is where we, we want to be, even though I know it's so hard. That's why it's so cool to be able to read a psalm and it kind of puts words in our mouth. Okay, so this is how I need to be. Even though it's hard. And the cool thing about the Psalms, though, is that it, but it does say, you know, express the difficulties as well. It's not like sugar-coated or candy-coated, so to speak. It's honest. It's honest. You know, so uh, here we go. If you know God's track record in the past, all the good things he's done back in the day, here's a question. Does that mean that everything goes fine and dandy along the way? No, it's a battle. It, life is a battle. It is a war. Sometimes we struggle for doing the wrong thing. Sometimes we struggle for doing the right thing. So we live in a fallen world, fallen bodies, fighting fallen angels. So in light of all this, you know, what should we do? And we pray. And we seek God. We draw near. You know, notice what we read in, in verse 9. Again, being honest. He, he's just being honest. Lord, but you have cast us off and put us to shame. And you don't go out with our armies. You make us turn back from the enemy, and those who hate us have taken spoil for themselves. You have given us up like sheep intended for food and have scattered us among the nations. You sell your people for next to nothing, and, and you're not even enriched by selling them. You make us a reproach to our neighbors, a scorn and a derision to those all around us. You make us a byword among the nations, a shaking of the head among the peoples. 
My dishonor is continually before me and the shame of my face has covered me because of the voice of him who reproaches and reviles, because of the enemy and the avenger. You know, I mean, this guy right here, they were going through some dark days of defeat. You know, that's what he's saying there in in verse 9. You do not go out with our armies. You, You make us turn back from the enemy. I mean, the, the, the soldiers of God had to retreat. They, they, we read right here, they'd been robbed by those who hated them as if they were devoured by wolves, taken into captivity, scattered among the nations. They'd sunk so low that they were up for sale at the slave market. And it was a shame, it was a reproach, scorned by others when... Others even considered them and their predicament. They just shook their head when they thought about them. You know, and, and sometimes we're in situations like that. And it's like, wait a minute, time out. Aren't, aren't, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a Christian. I'm a child of God. You know, I, I wonder sometimes what it was like for Joseph when he was sold. I wonder what it was like for David when he was on the run. I wonder what it was like for Abraham when he was about to die. God said, I'm going to give you this land. And, you know, he didn't have it. I mean, he he owned a grave. That's all he owned. But but now, when we think of Abraham, we think the father of, of, of the faith. He's a picture of the father. I mean... Sometimes we don't really see it until after we die. Sometimes we see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living, but not always. We know for sure, though, that there we will, right? You know, when you look at all these things, when you're in the middle of such heartache, looking at everything from this side of time, it can be really, really tough. And that's why you got to pray. That's, to me, I always come back to that. I always come back to that. So I'm telling you, husbands, pray with your wives. Get on your knees. Pray with them. It's life-changing. You pray. We pray. Today's our last day of fasting. I'm almost sad, you know. Tomorrow, you guys are all going to grub like crazy, man. <laughs> But maybe not. You know, God's done a lot in these last 40 days. But I tell you what, um, he's calling us to pray. What do we do? That's what we got to do. We, we have to pray. You know, it's interesting. We read in verse 17, all this has come upon us, but we have not forgotten you, nor have we dealt falsely with your covenant. Our heart has not turned back, nor have our steps departed from your way. But you have severely broken us in the place of jackals and covered us with the shadow of death. You know, and, and you look at that right here and you're like, wait a minute, they're in captivity because they're being disciplined by God. They're in captivity because of their sin. How can he say, you know, all this has come upon us, but we haven't forgotten you, nor have we dealt falsely with your covenant. And, and really, like, like Adam Clark said, they, they must be understood in a qualified sense. What he's basically saying is we haven't apostatized. 
We, we're still believers. Yeah, and that's why they were being disciplined. That's why they were there and God was chastening his people. And so sometimes we blow it and God chastens us and it can get really, really bad. And again, sometimes it's things we've done wrong, sometimes it's things we've done right. But if it's something that you've done wrong, there you are, you sunk, you're, you know, you're in the pits and you know, it hurts so bad and part of you is saying, but Lord, I'm still your son. I still believe. That's kind of what they're saying right here. Imagine 70 years of captivity in Babylon. I mean, in 722 BC, the Assyrians came and they took the, the, the northern tribes away, Israel, 10 tribes. And, and you, know, you would figure that the southern kingdom would have learned from them, but they didn't. And so in 586 B.C., after three sieges, the Babylonians came and took them away. And they didn't have mercy, and they raped the women, and they cut the pregnant women, and they took out their kids, and they would, you know, just like the Assyrians, same thing. They put hooks in their mouths, or, you know, they dismembered them. They would take out eyes. I mean, they were merciless. And then they took them to Babylon, and then they were there for 70 years. And so he's saying, but Lord... We're still your children, yeah. And sometimes we feel like that, right? In their heart, they hadn't turned back. That's what we read in verse 18. They didn't, you know, depart from the faith, but God delivered them into the hands of a fierce, cruel, and murderous people. And that's, that's the scourging of the Lord. And sometimes that happens, Right? I mean, he talks about the, the jackals there, and the, that's really a place where there's no human inhabitant, so to speak. You know, all they see is the hissing serpents or the howling beasts, the roaring lions. It was a tough place for them. And so we read in verse 20, he's saying, and he's just trying to plead with the Lord, if we had forgotten the name of our God or stretched out our hands to a foreign God, would God, not God, search this out? In other words, he would have known, for he knows the secrets of the heart. Yet for your sake, we are killed all day long. We are counted as sheep for the slaughter. You know, and again, we don't know all the details of this. We do know the children of Israel were in captivity for 70 years. And he's like, he's saying, Lord, we haven't forgotten you uh, we really do feel, though, that you've forgotten us. As a matter of fact, we feel as if, he says there in verse 22, that we're being slaughtered. That's how we feel. Psalm 44 and 22 in the New English translation just says, because of you, we are killed all day long. We are treated like sheep at the slaughtering block. You know, and, and he's looking at this. He's in the middle of this discipline. He's thinking it's too much for him. And he's thinking, nothing good can come out of this. And then, you know, we go and we see what happened. And I, I, I even like what Paul wrote in Romans 8. Let's turn there. Because you're thinking, well, nothing good can come out of this because it's so, it's so hard, it's so tough. But, but Romans 8, in verse 28, we begin reading. 
And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. Whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. In one sense, he's kind of saying like it's done. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? As it is written, and he quotes from the psalm that we're studying, for your sake we are killed all day long. Think about that. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Yet in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded, and I've learned, and I've read my Bible, and I know who my God is, that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so, you know, they haven't apostatized. They haven't departed. They're still believers, but they're being chastened by God. And, you know, they're going through these things. And like I said, sometimes because of what we've done wrong, sometimes because of what we've done right, per se. But in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. God will work it together for good. Do you trust him? And sometimes it's hard to see when you're in the middle of all that. That's why Jeremiah wrote to those who were in captivity in Jeremiah 29, right? 11 through 13. He says, for I know the, the thoughts for... The, uh, Jeremiah 29, 10, we should start there. For thus says the Lord, after 70 years are completed at Babylon. In other words, when I'm done disciplining you, when I'm done with it, I will visit you and perform my good word towards you and cause you to return to this place. For I know the thoughts that I think toward you, says the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil that give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and go and pray to me and I will listen to you and you will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. And I will be found by you, says the Lord, and I will bring you back from your captivity. I will gather you from all the nations and from all the places where I have driven you, says the Lord, and I will bring you to the place from which I cause you to be carried away captive because you have said the Lord has raised us up as up prophets for us in Babylon. And so God, he still had a plan for them. And so the, they didn't believe. They, weren't in the, they were in the middle of it. And they were praying. Look at verse 23. Awake. Why do you sleep, O Lord? What does that remind you of? It reminds you of the time when they were in the boat, right? And Jesus said, hey, we're going to the other side. 
And then the storm came. He fell asleep at the stern, and they were panicking. Lord, don't you care that we're perishing? Of course he cares. He died for you. He's testing your faith. And then he woke up, and he rebuked it. And they were on the other side. I mean, the Lord doesn't sleep, right? We know that according to the scriptures in Psalm 121. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel shall neither slumber nor sleep. F.B. Meyer said, Though the Lord seemed to sleep in the stern of the boat, do not be afraid. If he is with you, no storm can prevail to your destruction. So, you know, they're praying this prayer, Lord, wake up. Why do you sleep? Arise, do not cast us off forever. You know what? He won't cast you off forever. That's the whole point. But when we talk about forever, we're talking about heaven. When we talk about earth, we're talking about a period of time. It's a vapor. He won't cast you off forever. Why do you hide your face and forget our affliction and our oppression? For our soul is bowed down to the dust. Our body clings to the ground. Arise for our help and redeem us for your mercy's sake. You know, and in and, and reading this psalm, you know, I, I don't know for sure, but it, it may have been used by God. You know, as he hears these, the incense rises up before him. It's, maybe it's all part of the, the whole bringing him back to the land. So when you're there, Oh, man. Sometimes I, I look at people and I wonder, what will it take to make you a man of prayer? What is it going to take to bring us to our knees, to bring us to our face, to bring us to a place where we seek him with everything we are? That's what this psalm is. And, you know, he knows who God is. He knows what God is able to do. And he's praying. He's claiming, Lord, you're my king. Command victories. But, Lord, i got to be honest with you. This is how I feel. And that's how you pray. So, so that psalm right there is really directed towards Israel. But then the next psalm is a beautiful psalm. I wish we had more time, but we're going to go through it. It's really directed more towards the church, and it's about the bride and the bridegroom, about this wonderful wedding that's going to happen. Do you guys like weddings? They're glorious. Imagine Revelation chapter 19, the marriage supper of the Lamb. You know, in Revelation 21, the the Lamb and his bride, I mean, it's going to be amazing. We're the bride. But, but in Jewish weddings, more focus was on the bridegroom. Sorry, ladies, but that's just the way it was. Look at Psalm 45. To the chief musician set to the lilies a contemplation of the sons of Korah, a song of love. I like that, huh? A song of love. Other translations call it a, a wedding song. And so he says here in, in verse 1, My heart is overflowing with a good theme. I recite my composition concerning the king. My tongue is the pen of a ready writer. And then we see right here basically that, you know, this psalmist's heart is stirred up with this special song uh, for the king. 
And we're going to see, I think part of the reason that's just so special is because it's it's like super inspired by God. You guys are going to see this psalm is amazing. We're going to see it this evening, a cherished chapter in the Bible of the king and his bride, ultimately in reference to Jesus and the church. And some even say that Psalm 44 is the Jews and 45 is the Gentiles. But, but you know, it, it's interesting. Uh, uh, when we look at this, he begins with the bridegroom. And in this special scene of the son, we, we have insight also into the relationship that the father has with Christ and even speckled with his humanity. Look at verse 2. He says, You are fairer than the sons of men. Grace is poured upon your lips. Therefore, God has blessed you forever. Gird your sword upon your thigh, O mighty one, with your glory and your majesty, and in your majesty ride prosperously because of truth, humility, and righteousness. And and your right hand shall teach you awesome things. Your arrows are sharp in the heart of the king's enemies. The peoples or nations, they fall under you. And here we have a picture of the king going out. You know, and we'll come back to verse 2 a little later. But, you know, here we see that the warrior is armed with some interesting things. Look, if you would, at verse 3. You know, the sword. Notice the sword is upon his thigh, right? And that kind of makes sense for a warrior, but, but he also has grace on his lips. Verse 2, you are fairer more than the sons of men. Grace is poured upon your lips. And then you got a sword on your thigh. And you wonder, why would a conquering king, why would a warrior, why would a soldier need grace on his lips? And then we read about his glory in verse 3. We read about his majesty in verse 3 and 4. But, but we also read uh, about truth and humility there in verse 4. Why would a conquering king in battle need humility? And of course we know that it's because this conquering king who is fairer than the sons of men is none other than Jesus. Right? And we're going to see it so clearly. You know, we, we know that Jesus came in humility and that's how he brought about victory. In Philippians chapter 2, 6 through 8, as Paul is writing about Jesus, he says, who being in the form of God, did not consider robbery to be equal with God. In other words, he knew he was equal with God. That wasn't too much for him. But he made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death even the death of the cross. And so this conquering king, he goes out with a sword on his thigh, but he also has grace on his lips, and he's, you know, glory and majesty, but he's also humility. And we can visualize a king defeating his enemy with that, you know, the bow and the arrows. We read the arrows there in verse 5, but in Jesus' case, it wasn't necessarily the enemy who was pierced per se, it was Christ that was pierced when he was nailed to a cross. And Colossians 2, 13 through 15 talks about how that's how he gave us the victory. Jesus' humility led to his victory. 
And of course, we know he didn't stay down. He rose from the grave. And what we find in the Bible is that if you humble yourself, what happens? God will exalt you, right? And the cross leads to a crown. That's the Bible. That's how it works. That's what happened with Jesus. Notice what we read next in verse 6. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is a scepter of your kingdom. You love righteousness and hate. You hate wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness more than your companions. All your garments are scented with myrrh and aloes and cassia out of the ivory palaces by which they have made you glad. And in, here in verses 6 and 7, they're quoted in the book of Hebrews, chapter 1, verses 8 and 9. And for those of you who have read Hebrews, it's kind of cool kind of going through the Psalms now and then you're, you hit this point where in the book of Hebrews, he's, he's presenting Jesus greater, you know, greater, greater, greater than the angels. And we see him greater than, you know, all of them, Moses, Joshua, the Levitical priesthood, all that kind of stuff. But it exalts Jesus, right? And he's quoting from this passage right here. And notice what, we, what he says about Jesus there in verse 6. Your throne, O God. He calls Jesus God. Here the Father calls him God. He's not just a man in verse 2. He says, you're more fair than the sons of men. He's not an angel. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 5, it says, For to which of the angels did he ever say, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever? The, the writer of the Hebrews, no, he's not an angel because the Father calls him God. You know, the Jews of all people, they were not polytheists. They were monotheists. There were not multiple gods. There was only one God, right? And here we see that God is speaking to God. The father is speaking to the son, the king, you know, the bridegroom. It reminds me of John 1.1, 1, 1, where it says, In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And that's what we see going on right here. You know, Jesus is the bridegroom. Matthew 9.15 talks about that. John chapter 3, verse 29. And so it, and it says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever but, but notice it says a scepter of righteousness is a scepter of your kingdom. You love righteousness and hate wickedness. More than likely, that's in reference to the millennial kingdom. When Jesus reigns on earth for a thousand years, he reigns in righteousness. There is no wickedness. He deals with it immediately. So the father, he sees all this. He sees what happened to his son when his son clothed himself in humanity humbled himself, he took on that dual nature and he was tested and he was tempted and he passed every single test that, that came his way, that the devil threw his way. The father saw all these things that his son did and he said, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. That's what we see going on right here. Therefore, it says, God, your God has anointed you with the oil of gladness more than your companions. You know, and, and we've got to be really careful here, but it's interesting when you read different commentaries and thoughts and stuff like this, it might be stretching things a bit, but you might even say that the one at Jesus' right hand, there in verse 4, it says, in your right hand, what's, who's the right hand of Jesus? Some people say it's the Holy Spirit. And your right hand shall teach you 
awesome things. So Jesus, did Jesus get taught? Yeah, the Bible says he learned obedience because he took on the human nature. It's interesting, right? You read that in Hebrews chapter 5 and verse 8 and Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 15. Therefore, the joy of Jesus is, is you know what it's going to be in verse 7? It's interesting. Now, again, you've got to be careful with this, but just things to think about. And theologians and teachers and Christians throughout history, they have different opinions. But the, the, who's his companions? Some say that his companions are the Father and the Spirit because he's the Son, part of the eternal Godhead. And what is it that Jesus experienced that's unique even within the Godhead? You want to know what it is? Marriage. That, that oil of gladness. When, when, and you guys, we don't understand it. I don't think we appreciate it. I don't think we see it for what it really is. But when we're in heaven and he's our husband and we're his bride... I mean, the Father and the Spirit, they'll be there in their fullness. And I'm not trying to take away from anything, but he's got a body. And so there's something unique about this wedding, this joy, this love. And he goes on and he talks about it. You know, in verse 9, he talks about the guy's garments and, you know, they've got the wedding cologne on and... And then in, in verse 9, he says that king's daughters are among your honorable women. At your right hand stands the queen in gold from Ophir. Now, some will say that this is in reference to Solomon's bride, but ultimately we know this is in reference to the bride of Christ. And, and the gold of Ophir is probably, you know, this is the best gold of all. What it is, is, is us bathed in the blood of Jesus, robed in his righteousness. You and me, perfect. He says, listen, O daughter, consider and incline your ear. Forget your own people also and, and your father's house. And that's exactly what Jesus said. He said, if you come to me and you don't hate father, mother, spouse, children, all others, in comparison to your love for me, then you're not worthy to be my disciple. I mean, it's interesting, right? Right? So the king will greatly desire your beauty because he is your Lord. Worship him. Now, that's interesting. If it's just the Solomon, you don't go worship Solomon. The Jews would never have that in their Bible. This is speaking of God. And the daughter of Tyre will come with a gift. The rich among the people will seek your favor. This is what happens to the church when they're Royal, it says in verse 13, daughter is all glorious within the palace. Her clothing is woven with gold. She shall be brought to the king in robes of many colors. Speaking of her favor, the virgins, your companions who follow her, shall be brought to you with gladness and rejoicing. They shall be brought, they shall enter the king's palace. You know, and, and Jesus, when he hung on the cross, he saw us. I love what we read right here. I mean, there's so much here, but I just love verse 11. So the king will greatly desire your beauty. You know, you look at your bride and you just, man, she's so beautiful. 
That's the way the Lord sees us. And I think that's the way he saw us on the cross when he was hanging there for the joy that was set before him. You know, sometimes we look at ourselves and we think, we're, we know, how can God love me? And, and you've got you to gotta try your best to see yourself in, in, from his perspective. Have you guys ever heard that say, beauty is in the eye of the beholder? Jesus sees you that way. And so we have this gladness and this joy of heaven. And so we read in verse 16, it comes back to the groom, and it says, Instead of your fathers shall be your sons, whom you shall make princes in all the earth, and I will make your name to be remembered in all generations. Therefore the people shall praise you forever and ever. What name? The name above all names. Nor is there salvation in any other. For there is no other name under earth given among us as, as Christians seeing his name whereby we must be saved. That at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue confess, right? And so um, the bride bathed in his blood, robed in his righteousness. This is such a cool chapter. I, we always run out of time. I don't know what's, that clock is broken, man. I, I think something's wrong with it. But let me uh, close with one last story as we get the musicians co- to come up. You know, uh, a Danish theologian, he told a story about a, a certain kingdom wherein there was a handsome prince searching for a woman worthy enough to be his wife and to become queen of the land. So one day, while running an errand for his father, he passed through a poor village. As he glanced out the window of his carriage, his eyes fell on a a beautiful peasant maiden. And during the ensuing days, he would often pass by the young lady, and soon he fell in love with her. But he had a problem. How could he seek her hand? He could command her to marry him, but the prince wanted someone who would marry him out of love, not coercion. He could show up at her door in splendid uniform in a gold carriage drawn by horses and attendants in tow and bear a chest of jewels and gold, but then how would he know if she really loved him or if she was just overawed and overwhelmed with his splendor? So finally he came up with another solution. He stripped off his royal robes. He put on common dress. He moved into the village and he got to know her without revealing his identity in the beginning. As he lived among the people, the prince and the maiden became friends. They shared interests and talked about their concerns. By and by, the young lady grew to know him and grew to love him for who he was because he had first loved her. And this is exactly the gospel. The Prince of Peace himself, Jesus Christ, laid aside the robes of his glory, garbed himself as a peasant, became a human being, and moved into our village, onto our planet, to woo us to himself. And I pray that we would be wooed, man, because he is an awesome God. Amen.